a spirit of atheism and a spirit of militaristic power. It doesn't take a PhD to discern that these are characteristics of the anti-God, anti-Christ forces in the world. But did you know that there is a far more subtle anti-God spirit which can invade our lives, our marriages, and our homes? In today's study, Dave Wurtzen exposes a seduction that does not involve sexual temptation. It is a passion that has become totally acceptable in America. But this passion generates the stress, the anger, the fear, and the impersonalness that can destroy our homes and our lives. Let's join Dave and get some solid reasons why we must not worship the bottom line. A lot of you this week out there in the business world have experienced a tremendous amount of stress and worry. I mean, it's so powerful in our culture that by the time you get to be in your early 40s, it's possible that your arteries will be so clogged that you'll have to have heart surgery, or it's possible that, you know, that you'll, be, you'll have your blood pressure so high that you'll be stroking out. In other words, this area of stress over money is one of the major stresses in our culture right now. Maybe in your marriage. It's very possible that in your marriage that there's kind of an underlying just cross-current of fear and of wondering how we're going to make it. And it causes you to get really angry because when we're afraid, when we're fearful, we get really upset and we get angry and we lash out. And a lot of the problems, as I talk to couples, one of the major problems that destroys marriages is, is a tremendous pressure over finances. And what I want to talk to you about today is we've been talking about countering the spirit of Antichrist. And as we've been talking about the first two elements of the spirit of Antichrist from Daniel chapter 11, let's turn there. Because the first two elements are things that I'm sure that if I were to say, how many of you think atheism is bad? How many think atheism is bad? How many think atheism would be something that would pull down the cause of Christ? You would all respond, sure, atheism is bad. It's going to destroy the work of God. And I think when, when Gould from Harvard speaks to you about worshiping evolution and worshiping the material world, and when Carl Sagan used to preach that gospel of, of just worshiping the present universe, I don't think there's hardly any of us that are taken by surprise. I don't think there's hardly any of us that say, man, I didn't know that was Satan working. I mean, we can get really emotional, and we're very perceptive when it comes to the attack of the evil one in the area of atheism, whether we worship the true God or whether we deny the presence of God. I think the second area that I talk to you about as we've been talking about countering the spirit of Antichrist, that area of power. I think all of us know that when Hitler took the, the Blitzrig and took that German army and just smashed innocent people and destroyed entire nations, we know that's bad. I mean, you don't need a, a degree from Harvard to figure out and to discern that that use of power illegitimately is, is, just, is just wrong. It's evil. In other words, I don't think that the, the threat of living for power kind of sneaks up on us. But I want you to look at Daniel chapter 11 and look at verse 38 again. Instead of them, he, that is Antichrist, will honor a God of fortresses. That's that God of power. A God unknown to his father. So he's going to have military might. That's a whole new technology. And maybe we're already beginning to see the movement towards that final expression of, of, of militarism and antichrist kingdom, challenging the kingdom of Christ. But look what it says. He honors these gods of military might with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And this gives us insight into the third spirit that we need to be very alert about. First of all, the spirit of anti-God, atheism, 
living our lives as if there isn't a God. How do we counter that? We gather together and do what we just did. I hope that as you were singing, that you were connecting with the real God. Do you think that the Lord is precious? You say, I'm not sure he is precious. If you're not sure that he's precious, then you need to spend some time in his word and let him communicate his preciousness to you. You see, he's really there. And if you open your heart to him, if you can quiet down some of the connections with other people, some of the concerns about some other things, and you really open your heart, God will show up in your life in an incredibly powerful way. And you begin to understand how precious he is, and that's what worship is for you to make that connection with him and begin to talk to him and begin to sing to him and be, begin to tell him from your heart what he means to you, that he really is precious Lord. And as we gather together, the, the whole time that we're having should be the exact counter, you know, counterbalance to atheism. We are affirming there is a God. He's working in our life. He's right here. We've come here to celebrate him. And that's what we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will do. So the spirit of atheism isn't something that kind of sneaks up on you. As subtle as its influence is, I'm sure that any, even an atheist would know if you're a follower of Christ and, you're, and you believe in the word of God, atheism is bad. The same thing is true of power. But when we come to this area of money, we come to the area of worshiping money. It's much more subtle. If I talk about it from the context of an antichrist, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar was in the book of Daniel when we studied that book. Like Nebuchadnezzar is one of the antichrists. He's one of the spirit of the antichrist that's gone out into the world. As I look at Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 when he decides to be the entire image and he builds this colossal image, this devastating, gigantic image and sets it up on the plains of Dura. What he's calling the people to do is to worship him, but he's also calling them to worship the gods of Babylon, to worship gold and silver. In fact, we began the book of Daniel with the, the vessels of gold being taken from the temple of God, taken over to Babylon, and the Babylonians are celebrating our gods of wood and stone and gold and precious stones. All of these gods have now conquered the invisible God of Israel. That's what it's all about. As we see that blatant challenge to worship the gold and the silver and the, the materialism of Babylon, I think, you know, that's not very subtle. But in my own life, as I'm living day by day, it becomes very subtle. In fact, I can just so easily shift. And what excites me, what really turns me on, what makes me feel important, for example, is the way that I'm dressed. For example, if I get a nice three-piece suit on and I go up to a party in Dallas and I feel like a power person now. Because now I've got my three-piece suit on and people even comment on how, how nice you look. If you're a teenager, we need to go to the malls and be sure to get the right clothes so that we can be the right, get the right response when we go to school this coming week. And the idea is that if I put on the right threads, then I'm going to really be somebody important. Then I'm going to be someone that people will look up to. I'm going to get the recognition that I need. And that, you know, that in itself sounds so innocent and it sounds like, boy, there's no problem there. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good about the way that you look. In fact, we're going to talk about the fact that God really is concerned about that. But when we start to feel that my life, my life is the clothes that I wear, then we've had this subtle little insidious infection come in. And it's called the worship of material things. And it begins to control our life. And we begin to wonder, you know, we, we begin to strive so that we can get the right clothes and the right cars and the right home. And on and on it goes. And in America today, we often talk about like immorality, like Josh McDowell. Josh's previous series was all on sexuality and having a biblical appreciation for, for the way that sex should be. 
So when we face the temptation sexually, we automatically know, boy, that's the, if, it's, if it's not the person I'm committed to, it's not the person I made a covenant to, we know that that's wrong. Even though it's a great pull in our culture, it's not like a very subtle, deceptive temptation. It's, it's kind of right out there. And when you see it on TV and when you see it in the movies and when you experience it in real life, it's like, boy, yeah, I know, this is an illicit love. But money kind of sneaks up on me. In my own life, for example, if I had an affair, if I you know, had a problem and, and made love to the wrong woman, which would be making lust, I'd be out of here. In other words, you all would have to discipline me and you'd have to correct me and it would tear this church to smithereens. It's just immorality and adultery is such a very strong sin and, it, and it's right out there and it, it's very destructive. But you know, it's possible for my heart as a pastor to be seduced by worshiping things worshiping money it's possible for you to be seduced and you know what i can go along with that sin for many many years and a lot of people wouldn't even be aware of it and yet from god's standpoint it's part of the spirit of antichrist the lord jesus nailed it like he does in so many ways the lord jesus in his basic foundational constitution turn to matthew chapter six because at the end of the sermon on the mount the lord jesus who's the counter king as we talk about conquering the spirit of Antichrist and we talk about um, being able to resist him, the way that we do it is getting into the spirit of Christ. And the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and 7 is laying forth to us the constitution. He's laying forth to us the constitution of his kingdom. If you say, Dave, what's it like to be in the kingdom of Christ and to be following his authority, you open up to the Sermon on the Mount. It's that sermon where the king laid out his basic constitution, the way that his authority structure will work. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 24, the Lord Jesus talks to us about this third element of countering the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of money, of materialism. Look what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus has a way, and in our culture, you know, Jesus kind of cuts across the way we like to think because we like to think in terms of things being kind of yes, kind of no. Maybe this, maybe that. Kind of everything's great. But in this sermon, as the Lord Jesus begins to move towards its conclusion, look what he does. He says, listen, there is no middle ground. You're going to either worship me, you're going to either bow down before me, or you're going to worship money. And they're mutually exclusive. Now look what else he said in the verse. He says, no one can serve. Notice as he talks about at the end of the verse, he says, no one can serve God and money. And some of you have in your translation, no one can worship God or money. Notice how the NIV, and it's a good translation. They talk about service. No one can serve two masters. Who are you worshiping? Who's got the center place in your life? And one of the words that we use for worship is the word to serve. A lot of you have the idea that worship is what we do during the beginning of the service. It's when we sing a few hymns. It's when we sing a few choruses. When, we, when we, we're having the music time. That's the worship time of our church. But what worship really is, is much bigger than that. Worship has to do with a word like service. Worship is what determines who do you get up in the morning to serve. It has a picture of a great king that's standing there and he's ready for you to do his bidding and the servant gets down on his knees and he serves that king today. I want everyone to ask yourself, who's the king in your life? Who do you serve? 
Who do you live for today? Who do you look for for, to, for the meaning of your life and what you're going to do today? Worship has to do with service. Another thing that worship has to do with is adoration. Worship has to do, like in the Old Testament, you often hear the word praise and adore someone. And that has to do with worship too. You see, think about when you're in a conversation, what you get excited about. Like, for example, if let's suppose that we get talking about our, our favorite restaurants and we start to boast about the restaurants in the Dallas area. And we say, man, I like to go to, to Macaroni Grill, man. They've got some of the greatest Italian dishes there. And somebody else says, no, man, I like to go to Lowry's. Man, you can't believe the roast beef that's there. You know what I'm doing? I am now expressing adoration for those restaurants. Nothing wrong in itself unless it takes a preeminent place. But what I'm doing is I'm praising those restaurants. How many of you have ever gotten in a conversation where somebody starts to talk about the Dallas area and you start going through the different things in the Dallas area that they need to do while they're here? Like I flew back with a fire chief from Lidditz, Pennsylvania, and he was asking me, I'm going to be in Dallas for about four days and, and I'm going to be here. What should I do? So I began praising various things in Dallas, things that need to be on his must list to do. That's part of the element of what worship is. Worship is praising what's important to me, what I've experienced, what's, what's really brought me joy and happiness and peace. And what Jesus is talking about is that in your own life, you're going to decide what you're going to worship, what you're going to get really turned on about, what you're going to get excited about, what you're going to live for. What's going to give meaning and direction to your life? And what we do as we go through our life is we come up with all different answers to the question, what am I going to serve? What am I going to praise? What am I going to be thankful for? And what I want to share with you is that, is that Jesus Christ is coming to you. He's not mean. He's not vindictive. He's not scolding you. And he is talking to you and he says, I want to protect you from one of the worst fallacies, one of the worst deceptions that can ever happen to a human being. I don't want you to devote this incredible thing called the gift of life you've received to, to the wrong thing. You have, you're an immaterial thing. You're someone who, who can think, who can feel and decide. You're much bigger than just the stuff of your life. And what I want you to do is I want you to connect with what's going to last forever and ever and ever. Jesus is coming to us today and he's saying, listen, I built you not just to, to be a little baby and drink some milk and have your diapers changed and finally get potty chained and then look forward to school and, and going through school and then trying to go through school so you can get a good job. And when you get done doing that, you know, you kind of retire and, and then you're put in a box and that's it. And all your life was was a bunch of stuff. Jesus Christ wants to deliver you from that. Some of you might have read uh, James Dobson's letter where he wrote about going to Memphis and seeing the king's, the king's mansion there, the dwelling. He talked about the thousands of people that have gone through Elvis Presley's home. And Stan shared with me at a, at a men's meeting that he had just gone to Memphis and he went through Elvis Presley's house. And one of the things that Stan mentioned was exactly what Dr. Dobson mentioned is that it was, it was depressing was very depressing because as you went through the house, they had all these TVs, all these phonographs, all these cars, all this stuff. In fact, the latest technology, I mean, what was the latest technology in Elvis Presley's life? And he had the bucks to be able to have it all. He had airplanes. Uh, he would send his servants to, to go out to Denver to get him a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and have them fly back and give him the sandwich, all kinds of crazy stuff. But what Stan stressed to me 
is that as I looked around this home and began to evaluate, there was hardly anything in the home that I would want. The phonographs were right at the top of technological advance when Elvis Presley was alive. Our little kids wouldn't even want to use it. It's junk. All this stuff, what Stan was telling me is I looked around this, this home and one room after another, it was filled with junk. Now, unless you're into antiques, this stuff's not worth very much. Now, we can give it worth, but in reality, it's just a pile of stuff. And the tragedy was that here's the, a passion of a life, the passion of a gift, and yet it's now become nothing. And that's what Jesus, see, Jesus loves you and he loves me so much that he doesn't want me to go through this present life making the wrong choice, worshiping the wrong thing. So what he does is he lays out before us this choice. It's a choice that you're going to make today. Are you worried about how you're going to pay the bills? You're depending upon money. You're depending upon your job. Some of you say, well, Dave, I'm stressed out because the, our, our, right now our business is in such a turmoil. I'm not sure who's going to buy this. I'm not sure who's going to get control of it. That could be the end of my career. And, and that produces tremendous stress in our life. But you know what? Jesus comes to you and says, listen, I am in control of your life. I have an incredible plan for you. You could never guess all the turns, all the ins and outs in that plan. I'm probably going to take you into one job and, and into one area of the country, and then I'm going to move you around and take you into something else. I've got some plans that you haven't even thought of yet, but I want you to know that in every single part of the plan that I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be enjoying you. I want to bring pleasure to you. I want to, I want to fill you with life. You see, I'm the one that if you'll take a drink of me, that you'll, you'll, you'll never thirst again. You'll have the, a fountain of living water. That's what Jesus is talking about. And what I want you to think about is Jesus really wants you to experience that. You see, we all have, often we're talked about, well, don't love money, love God. And the, and the choice that some of the kids are thinking about is, man, if I love God, it means I'm going to drive around in, in some beat-up, you know, moth-eaten truck. And I'm going to have to wear clothes that jumped out of the missionary barrel. And I'm going to look like something that cat dragged in. And, I, and that's the way we, we start to think. In fact, I remember often in my life as a child, I, w- I would have preachers challenge me, give your life to God. And the whole idea was if I give my life for God, the next vision I had is I would be over in deep, dark Africa with my pe- pit helmet on. I'd have my little khaki shorts on, and I'd be trudging through the jungles. And that was the whole idea. Man, you give yourself to God. God is just waiting up in heaven to just find someone that will give his life completely to God, and then he can take away all the goodies all the good things that would make life really fulfilling and meaning. Boy, God's looking for someone that will give his heart so he can really zap them. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that idea, the idea that's in all of your heart, it's in my heart. There's a part of my heart that believes that if I worship God with all my heart, that if I serve Jesus with all of my being, that he will get me. He will use me. He will destroy me. You know what that is? That's the Garden of Eden complex. It's the whole idea that God really doesn't have your best interest at heart. The reason I'm talking to you today is that I'm really burdened about this. I think there's some of you right now that, are, that are, your life is almost coming unglued because of stress. You get up in the morning, there's no joy. You don't want to go to work. There's so much tension in your work. There's so much pressure. You're, you're wondering, you're, how can we make this go? And can we make it happen? And it seemed like the harder you try and the harder you press and the more you push, the worse it gets. 
Kids even talk to me, man, I, you know, I don't want to go back to school. The, the stress of it is, it's so important. This intense pressure. You need to get the grades so you can go to college, so you can get the right job. And, and then you look at half your friends, some of them that didn't go to college at all, that decided you know, that they're going to drop out after two years. Man, they're making big bucks. What's the use anyway? And you're caught in this tremendous bind. I want you to be delivered from that. Jesus doesn't want any of his children living stressed out like that. And the next few verses, he talks to us about how we can really connect with him, how we can really enjoy him, how we can be delivered from this incredible, tyrannous idol called the idol of money. The reason the Lord doesn't want you to worship money is just think at your funeral that we say we would like to know. Here's this person laid out here. And what we're going to do in your funeral is I call your banker in and says, tell us, banker, what was in this individual's account. And then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go out, we're going to have everybody at the funeral go out, and they're going to look at all the cards. We're going to get all the cards that you possess and try to gather in, even to some of the cards that you've sold. And we're going to have all the cards that you've possessed. And then we're going to have everybody walk through your house. We're going to celebrate. Look at all the stuff this person had. None of you have ever gone to a funeral like that. You say, that's ludicrous. That'd be the stupidest thing in the world. The funerals, we don't talk about a person's bank account because we all know deep inside, who cares right now? Doesn't mean anything right now. And what I want you to know, that Jesus is the only person that you can live for, that when you go all the way through this life, and when it comes time to pass on into eternity, Jesus is the only one that can be still filling you. He can still be controlling you with great joy and peace and happiness. In fact, this present life is just the beginning of experiencing how incredibly joyful and happy Jesus can make us. That's really what the scripture is telling us. You say, how do you know that? Look what Jesus says here in the next verses. As he goes on and as he develops this idea of worshiping him, worshiping God, and not worshiping money. Look what he says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Anybody worried about your life? I'm sure somebody here is worried about their life. I worry about my life. What are some of the things I worry about? What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. This is the big food problem and the big clothes problem. Two pretty big problems. The big food problem, the big clothes problem. Look what Jesus says in response to the food problem, first of all, and the clothes and the clothes problem. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in their barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? The Lord begins by talking to us about the food problem. Now, my kids don't really worry about the food problem that much. In other words, they expect the rice checks to be there in the morning when they're ready to go to school, and they expect, you know, the chicken to be fried or broiled and ready to go at night. You know, kids really aren't into worrying about food, but a lot of you adults are worried about it. We've got to be concerned about it. Where's the food going to come from? Courtney and Joel, as a new married couple, were talking to Josh, and they were last night, and they were talking about, you just wait till you have to pay your food bills. You know, you might not need money right now. I could hear the conversation. You might not need money right now, but you're going to need it. You just wait. The food bills. This is a big thing. Anybody, any of you ladies gone to Kroger's or one of the big stores and you said, man, I just can't stretch this money far enough. And we can laugh about that, but you know, we can get worried. We can get worried about that. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look at the birds. Some of you control freaks. I want you to know something. There are millions upon millions of birds around this entire planet right now that are being taken care of by the superintending power of God. 
And you know what? You don't have a thing to do with it. We were, in on the, we were on the Stillwater River in Montana. It's really misnamed, like I've told you. I mean, that's the stupidest name you can imagine. It's everything but still. I mean, it's a raging torrent. It has like four and five foot waves in it. That's why we were on it, to be able to enjoy this, this river rafting trip, you know, just like you always read about doing. We're coming down the river, and our guide's sitting next to me in the back. He says, man, I really hope this family is going to be ready for us up ahead. And I'm thinking, like, what kind of a family? We're going to meet, you know, Mel Gibson's ranch was on that place. Maybe we'll get to meet Mel and, and his extended family. He says, no. He said, there's an eagle family that I've been watching through this whole season. In fact, I've been watching him for months. And I really hope, he said, in fact, the mom and dad are now much smaller than the kids. There's, there's two kids, two great big male bald eagles. And suddenly we came around a turn, and they're up in a tree. I mean, I could have climbed up in the tree and gotten inside this nest. I mean, it's gigantic. I mean, this great big cone-shaped nest, beautifully formed. And all of a sudden, from that nest, there rose this gigantic bald eagle... It swooped down right over the river, right over our raft, and then swooped up way up into the sky and went way up by the mountains of the Beartooth Pass. You know what Jesus is saying? You know what? Dave Wurtson didn't plan for that bald eagle to get all the little mice and all the little rabbits and all the things that, were that, that made that big eagle be able to soar like that. It's mom and dad have been working month after month after month The mother taught them how to fly and all that incredible thing. You know what? I didn't have a thing to do with it. In fact, all I did was come around the bend of a river and this incredible beauty unfolds before me. You ever stop and think about that? Some of you that are are worried today, and I call you control freaks. You see, you think everything depends upon you. You think if you don't make it happen, it doesn't happen. I got news for you. You're not that important. You're not God. And God's doing all kinds of things around you that you don't have any part with, that, that you don't have anything to do with, and he just wants you to enjoy them. But some of you are so busy trying to control all the details, trying to make it happen, when the truth of the matter is that you don't have the foggiest idea how to take care of that big eagle. You don't have any idea how to teach it to fly. And all of it's just happening. And Jesus is saying, he's not saying that it happened because of evolution. You know, by hook or by crook, by chance probabilities, we kind of put a bunch of DNA, scrambled it together, and you wouldn't believe it, but after millions and millions of years, we produce the national bird, a beautiful bald eagle. Everybody knows that beautiful, majestic bald eagles are created by accident. Deep in your soul, you know that is the biggest bunch of hogwash anyone could ever tell you. You know what Jesus is telling you? Jesus is the one that's feeding those eagles. Let's take a little bird. That's the great big bird. How many of you, how many of you have, have hummingbird feeders at your house? How many of you have ever looked at a hummingbird? Look at the colors on, on the hummingbird. You ever looked at the brilliance of those colors? How many of you could come up, could take your oil paints and come up with a color like that? Some of you are saying, well, I'm more into the scientific bent. I'm not into the, into the artistic bent. So color's not really that important to me. Okay, those of you that are into aerodynamics, you design a plane. You design a plane that comes flying up to these little feeders with wings that are going, you know, just like just vibrating and just stop in space, you know, come whipping up, kind of like boom, and then whip. It's like a little Harrier jet. Only our Harrier, just compare a Harrier jet to this little hummingbird. I mean, Harrier jets, they, confu- they consume fuel like you wouldn't believe. That's why they're very inconvenient and not very practical because of the fuel that they do. And yet, just take a Harrier jet. I mean, its wings don't vibrate like that. They're just kind of there. 
And the thing is incredible to watch, but it's no hummingbird. Man, if we could make a jet airplane that, that maneuvered and everything like a hummingbird, it would be incredible. You know what God is saying? God is saying this verse. Listen, I'm the one. I'm the great artist. I'm the great artist that designed that. Some of you are worried, thinking the Lord can't take care of you. Stop worrying. You couldn't come up with a hummingbird if you tried from now till eternity. The best engineers in the world couldn't come up with a hummingbird. It just is God's thing. The kids like to talk about this is a God thing. That's what Jesus wants you to get a hold of in this passage. Life is really a God thing. And you're going to decide whether you're going to live this little measly life, trying to control everything, worried about the food you, you eat. And God says, listen, he's taking care of the birds. He's feeding them. Will you believe it? Will you believe that the God that feeds the birds is going to keep giving me jobs, keep giving me salaries, keep giving me rice checks or whatever I need to eat? I'm going to make it. Would you let go of that tremendous fear that I'm not going to be able to sustain myself? You see, that's the fear, that I'm not going to be able to sustain myself. And, you know, Jesus is so practical. In fact, it really hits home to me because there's a a translation that's verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? You notice a footnote down there. It says, who, by worrying, can add a single cubit to its height? Man, I remember as a little kid, man, I worried like crazy about adding to my height. Man, I wanted to play quarterback, and I wanted to be able to play in university. And, and man, everyone was telling me, man, you got to be six foot tall. And, man, I wanted to get on the stretch rack. You know, I would try to sleep certain ways in bed. You know, I would try to, I would try to hang from, from, like, high bars, you know, upside down, because it might stretch me out a little bit. But you know what? All of that worry and all that concern, I still ended up just the way I am right now. Not six foot by a million miles. You see, all that worry didn't add one single inch to my height. You see, I just don't have control of that. You can say, well, man, we've got some new things. You could take some pills and you might have grown to be six foot six. Yeah, then it probably would have stretched my whole physical being out to, the thing would have been so out of proportion, I probably would have died by now already because I would have been pumping blood too far or something. You see what this text is saying? This text is saying an amazing thing. It says, listen, you think you're in control. And if you think you're in control and you're all uptight about how you're going to provide for your needs, then you know what? You're worshiping yourself. Maybe even worse. Maybe you're trying to worship all this stuff you're trying to get that you think, man, if I only get this God, if I only get this thing, then life's going to really be something. And Jesus wants to come into your heart and says, listen, I'm God. I want you to enjoy me. And boy, do I have an incredible life for you to live. I've got eagles out there that I want you to see. And I want you to, I want you, when you see them lift their wind to the sky, I want you to know that they bring praise to me. They bring glory to me because I'm the one that designed that. He's got beautiful hummingbirds out there that he wants you to, to take the time out to see them and see what they do. And some of you are so stressed out, you say, hummingbird, eagle, what in the world is that? Because you live in such a concrete jungle. All you're seeing is cars and stained glass and, and, and steel window panes. And you think that's all there is. And all you're doing is breathing fumes. And that's going to destroy you. Jesus is, is coming to us today in love and says, listen, I don't want you seduced by the spirit of Antichrist. I don't want you to think this life is just gold and silver. It's just not that. It's enjoying me. It's knowing me. It's, it's learning to love me, learning to appreciate me. Look at the second thing he talked about in verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? Anybody worried about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. 
They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And this exposes another thing. If, if I say, listen, you go, into, you go into Foley's, you go into Penny's, and we say, man, Jesus, I want you to dress me today. Now, just be honest. Jesus, you pick out my clothes. What are you going to look like? What do you think you're going to look like? And be honest, a whole lot of us had an idea. Man, Jesus, that would be unspiritual to go into Neiman Marcus or Penny's or Sanger Harris, something like that. Jesus really isn't, isn't into that. I want you to notice something in this verse. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to look at the flower of the field and look how drab they look. Look how ugly they look. Man, there's not a bit of art in blue bonnets, right? When the spring of the year comes, people are absolutely stupid to come to Texas. I mean, they could stay with their mountains in Colorado, but people are absolutely stupid to come all the way down here to Texas, drive out into Ellis County, and drive out into rolling fields where it looks like just a sea of blue and white and the sky and the blue and the, the flowers all mixed together into a unique Texas experience that, that Colorado never has. People are stupid to do that, aren't they? Have you ever taken the time in the spring of the year just to look at a blue bonnet flower? I was running up in the Adirondacks. You know, it's cold up there, so they have wild flowers in late August. But while I was running, I couldn't figure out what this guy was doing. And I looked up. Here's this grown man, and he's up on this hillside right by the side of the road cutting all these flowers while I'm running along the side of the road. He was getting a whole bouquet together. Man, he had all different kinds. And I stopped while I was running and looked at this hillside. I bet you there were 25 different kinds of wild flowers. No nursery. Nobody watering it, really, just beside the road. And here's these incredible flowers. You know what Jesus says? They're here one day and gone the next. Just think about the wild flower. You see the argument of Jesus? There's not one of us that have ever been clothed with the beauty of a blue bonnet. I've never seen material that quite captures what God captures in a blue bonnet. Just never have. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, God is the, such a creator. He's such a powerful artist that here are flowers that are here today and they're gone two weeks later. And tons of people, tons of flowers are created that people never see. Now I want you to stop and think about a God that does that. You see, a God that creates things Beautiful eagles that maybe somebody will never see, but he's taking care of them. He's superintending them. Beautiful flowers that, that, are, that many times are just out in the forest. When we were up in the East Rosebud Canyon, there's a, the, our people that we were staying with had a beautiful canyon and a home in that canyon with several other people living up there. And a forest fire came through and just ruined the whole thing. I mean, just charred this entire forest. Just thousands and thousands of just poles, charcoal poles are strewn out along the hills and occasionally one of them will fall. And man, it, it just was depressing. You could smell the charcoal. It had rained and it brings just great big black soot down upon your lawn. But you know, as we walked up to this waterfall and as we got close to the waterfall, the trees were growing strong there, but all the way up to that waterfall, the whole base of that forest, that burned out charred forest, was covered with thousands upon thousands of different varieties of wildflowers. 
You see, God, that's the God that he, that's the God that he is. And I want you to know something. As I, as I point you to nature and challenge you to think the way Jesus is here, I want you to know that nature right now doesn't fully express how tender and how precious and how artistic and how creative and how colorful God really is because our sin, according to the book of Romans, has tainted the revelation of God in nature. So you're not even seeing. You're seeing a marred image of what God really does for you. You know what Jesus is calling you to do? He says, listen, oh, you have little faith. Don't you think you're more important than flowers? How many of you think that you're more important than a blue bonnet? You are. Now, unless you're just a, you're one of these people that think that the gods are in everything. You're one of these flower people or tree people. You see, Jesus says every one of you is much more important than a blue bonnet. And what he says, he moves from the lesser to the greater. He says, listen, if God clothes flowers in such beauty, in such incredible apparel, he says, don't you think because you're his kids that he's going to take care of you so much better? And that's why he closes his argument saying, so don't worry. See, I want you to be free from stress. You say, Dave, how can we counter the spirit of Antichrist? How can we counter the spirit of materialism? By, by helping one another not to get caught in this tension. By helping one another to learn what it is to really trust in God. It's a, it's a faith issue. Who do I believe in? Who do I think can take care of me? And we need to challenge each other. Some of us need to radically decide, I'm going to really believe what Jesus is saying in this text. I'm going to believe he'll take care of me. So when I feel the pressure coming, when I feel the worries coming, I'm going to go to him and I'm going to cast all my cares upon him. I cast all my cares upon you, all of my burdens, all of my fears. I put it all upon you, knowing that he's going to care for us. Don't worry what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. It says in verse 32, for the pagans run after all these things. You're going to be working this next week. You're going to be going to school and the idea of pagans here is not like they're bad people. They're, they're not any worse than us. It's just that we've been able to receive credit in our heart. In this verse, pagans are those, that are, are those that have not related to God yet. They haven't done a God commitment yet. They haven't opened their heart to God yet. And what Jesus is saying is if you look at the unbelieving world, the unbelieving world is running after clothes, running after food, running after exotic experiences. And it's a treadmill. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible pace. The United States of America, Japan, all the big industrialized countries are just moving at a frantic race because the pagans run after food. They run after clothes. They run after that money because that's going to be the meaning of life. And Jesus wants you to be able to step off that treadmill and say, I'm not a pagan anymore. I don't have to feel like I have to put the clothes on my back and I have to put the food in my stomach. And if I don't make it happen, it's just not going to happen. Instead, Jesus is saying, you have a heavenly daddy who's going to take care of you. For the pagans run after all these things, and your father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I want you to notice something, something that's often not communicated here. We tell you, give your life to Jesus. Make Jesus number one in your life. And the next thing we tell you is all the sacrifices you're going to make, all the things you're going to have to give up. I want you to know something. Jesus, if you really give your life to him, if you really give your life to him, it says all these things shall be added unto you. He doesn't say that he's a Scrooge. He doesn't say he's going to zap you. In fact, even if he does ask you to give something up, 
Sometimes because of a greater kingdom program and other things he wants to accomplish, sometimes we have to make great sacrifices. But I want you to know that one day, Jesus promises, I'll make up every one of those sacrifices. Now I want to ask you, you have to decide. You have to decide, will I believe that God will come through? Will I believe that God will meet my needs? Let me just give a concrete example of my own life. I was praying. I was going through seminary. Lord, I want to be a teacher. I want to be able to teach people the word of God. I want to help people. And the opportunity came. Tommy and Reva moved into a town called Midlothian. You know, I never heard of it. At that time, we were going to, uh, to, to Faith Bible Church and teaching an adult Sunday class up there. And I invited, you know, Tommy and Reva, who were in my class, who were moving to Midlothian. I said, why don't you start a Bible study in, in your home? And boy, that would be a great way to use your new house. Well, Tommy, like he often does, says, well, man, I'll start the Bible study if you'll come and teach it. So Mary and I started driving down, you know, every week. We drove down to Midlothian. I mean, as we drove in at that time, you would, as you got off 67, you'd come in, and there's all these houses that are along the side of the road there. And at that time, a lot of them were just shacks and run-down things. I remember Mary thinking, boy, this is Midlothian. This is all Midlothian is. And so later on, the church family invited us to come down here, and Mary in her mind had, boy, that's what we're going to be living in. And for the glory of the Lord Jesus, she said, boy, you know, the Lord's called me to, to, I'm his ally, and where he goes, I need to go, and we're going to do that. But you know what? We've been in Midlothian now 25 years. It's coming July, and I've got news for you. God provided a home for us. It's a nice home. God's met our needs. Some of you came. Precious friends came and made it possible for us to use our hands and join together. You know why, why God did that? Because he's a good Jesus. He's a faithful Jesus. He does provide for our needs. When you seek first, when you focus on communicating him and enjoying him and loving him, he does meet your needs. He does satisfy your desires. Jesus says this, if you follow me, if you give up houses or lands, fathers or mothers, like in our own life, the Lord called us to move away from our parents. I mean, New York and Texas are about as far apart culturally as you can get. Mary and I lived our whole lives away from our parents. But you know what Jesus promises? Jesus promises if you give up fathers and mothers, I'm going to multiply fathers and mothers to you. Our kids did not grow up without grandparents. Instead, instead of having one set of grandparents or two sets, they had a whole church family that was constantly growing of people that adopted them as their grandparents because in the body of Christ, we are a family. And then the Lord, at the, as, we, as we move later in the time, now the Lord brings mom and dad Van Campen down, and now they've got real grandparents here. See, God comes through. He says, if you give something up, I'm going to resolve it because I'm loving towards you. I have your best interests at heart. Now, God isn't always resolved in this life. I gave you a couple instances where the Lord resolved, seeking first his kingdom, and the Lord added these things right here in this life. There's some things that aren't added till we get home to eternity. But the commitment that you need to decide today, are you going to bow down and worship stuff, worship idols? Or are you going to get down on your knees before the most precious Savior, the most precious Savior, and worship him? Which means you're going to serve him. You're going to trust him. You're going to believe he's going to come through for you. Jesus closes the text. Seek first his kingdom. That's following his authority, living in his terrain, letting him be the king. Following his righteousness. That's not some rules and regulations. That's following his character, the expression of his rightness. 
following his righteousness. And he says, all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus is calling us to do, encountering the spirit of Antichrist, he wants us to live today. Some of you right now are so worried about tomorrow that you're not going to enjoy today. Some of you husbands are so stressed out about some of the challenges that you have at work that you can't just stop. When you sit down into a meal, you're eating the meal so fast because you're thinking about the next thing that you have to do. That's that treadmill of stress and worry I'm talking about. And you know the tragedy is you're going to go bombing through life and suddenly you're going to find out that all this stuff that you thought was so important, all those jobs you thought were really important, all those things that you could get because of the salary that you got, you're going to find out that suddenly it doesn't mean anything to you and you're going to bottom out in a horrible depression because your life doesn't have any meaning anymore. Jesus is offering us an incredibly glorious alternative. He says, listen, be a child that's his child. Realize that he's the great author of bald eagles and beautiful hummingbirds and beautiful wildflowers. He says, trust him, believe him. The Lord is calling us to radically believe that Jesus can put nice clothes on our back, good food in our stomach, and he can do it not just in this life, forever and ever. Let's pray. Might be a good thing as we close this service just to think about maybe three things that you really are worried about. And take those three things and and talk to Christ about them. Ask Christ to meet that need. You might think of that you're carrying three sacks on your back and they're heavy and you're kind of tired of carrying them. Why don't you just picture yourself lifting those three stressful worries and Just give them over to Jesus. Lift them off your back. In fact, even better, why don't you just let him, because he's really the one that can do it. Why don't you just let let him lift those sacks of worries off your back and take them away. And open your heart to really live the rest of this day enjoying God. That's right, enjoying him. That's what God wants us to do. Doesn't want you to serve him in drudgery. Doesn't want you to serve him in duty. He wants you to enjoy him. That's why Jesus talked to us like he did today. Money and materialism and making things, the worship of our life, the idols of our life, it all turns to just dust in our hands. It stresses us out. It worries us because we're really not in control. It doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we don't plan, but it means we don't do it as if we're God. We let God be God. Some of you in your marriages that have been fighting over finances and all stressed out about it. What's the Lord saying in this passage that can help you get by that impasse? Can help lift this stress off your life? Maybe some of you are doubting that Jesus really can clothe you with nice clothes. Maybe some of you want to wear clothes that Jesus really doesn't want you to wear because... They're just to make your your body a trap that can hurt other people. And maybe that's the struggle that you have today, to learn to let Jesus dress you so you can be his prince or princess and you can honor him in that way. Father, I would ask you that your Holy Spirit would take this countering the spirit of materialism
I pray that you would work in my own heart. I pray that you would deliver me from the stress that comes from unpaid bills and trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Help me to talk to you about those things and help me to depend upon you and help me to diligently do the job day by day that you've given me to do. Help me to be protected from uh, credit card debt and these other things that can get our finances so topsy-turvy. And I'd ask you, Lord, that just some of my precious brothers and sisters that are that really are going a mile a minute on that business treadmill. Lord, I can't do it. They've already heard Matthew 6 probably 30 or 40 times in their life. Lord, I can't cause their heart to get off that treadmill. But Lord, you can. And just because I love my brothers and sisters, I don't want any of them to waste this precious gift of life and wake up 20 years from now if they have that much time and realize it that they just gave their strength for the wrong things and they missed a lot of the beauty and a lot of the fun and a lot of the pleasure that you wanted to give them. So Lord, I would pray that your spirit would move them away from that treadmill that would hurt them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, Or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.